This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Monday afternoon, and on his way, Bill Gross. It is the most read stories we've been talking about on the Bloomberg today. Not surprisingly, I mean, this is one of the biggest names in investing, Paul, as you and I well know. John Gittleson uh, looks after all sorts of corners of the investing world for us out in Los Angeles. That's where he joins us on the phone. So, JG, this is the end of an era. Yeah, I really do think it is. I mean, it's a, a stellar career. He was the bond king. He managed more money, made more money for more people in the first decade of this century than any other money manager, according to Morningstar. Um, oh, that's that's quite a size and scope there. Yeah, exactly. And uh, also, though, I think it's like, are there going to be star managers yeah. in the same way? I mean, uh, he had good fortune to start his career when one person could have a lot of influence in this way. And what we've seen in recent few years is sort of the decline of performance of active managers, both stock pickers, bond managers, and hedge fund managers, for that matter, too. So, John, when you think back about his storied career, again, over 40 years, how did he actually get to become the bond king? It just seems you just don't see somebody that big in any one asset class. Well, um, basically, he sort of fell into bond management by accident, but what he was able to do was figure out a way to make money by managing bonds. Basically, before Bill, people would buy a bond, try and get the highest yield, and hold it to maturity, and he became a bond portfolio manager and trader. So he was able to get extra earnings uh, from his portfolio by figuring out now's a good time to buy or sell a bond based on the price of it. Um, so he put together these portfolios. He promoted it by starting with newsletters. Then he became like a TV personality yeah. on shows from the 80s, like Wall Street Week in Review, Louis Rukeyser's show. Uh, and then from there, he you know grew up with CNBC, and he had basically a great record for decades that made him a real authority. So we can't talk about Bill Gross with, without talking about probably the, the exit heard around the world when he left PIMCO, which, you know, he had essentially helped birth and, and certainly brought to, to prominence. Remind us of what happened there, John. So, yeah, Bill was basically the face of PIMCO. Uh, he did extremely, exceedingly well. Uh, through the financial crisis, and then uh, he sort of lost his mojo. Uh, and there was a newer generation of money managers at PIMCO who uh, had been outperforming him. Because of PIMCO's history and Bill's history there, he was taking a huge percent, something like 20% of the bonus pool personally. His last year there, he earned take-home $300 bucks. So there were some people who were jealous of him. They were like, you know, 
who's this guy who's taking all this money? Also, uh, he was kind of a mercurial leader who would one day say, that's a great idea, go to work on that, fellas. The next day say, what are you doing working on all this stuff? <laughs> and people were like, either he leaves or I leave. Yeah. Uh, push came to shove, and Bill Gross essentially got shoved. He jumped before he was pushed and moved over to Janice, where he set himself up to say, you know, I will prove that I am a great investor on my own. And basically, I think what his career post-PIMCO demonstrated was he was a great orchestra leader. He set up a great symphony orchestra at PIMCO, uh, and he was a good conductor. But when he was like a a one-man act, one-man musician, uh, he didn't do very well at all. And it takes more than one person, one single star manager to put on a good show. So, John, you mentioned you know his performance certainly did wane in the uh, later years of his career. Is there a sense of what happened? Did he just kind of lose his touch? Did the market move away from him? Did he just not change with the times? Or, as you said, he was better, you know, maybe a you know conductor as opposed to a, you know a first fiddle. Well, at Janus, he um, was managing the money pretty much on his own. wasn't getting a bunch of ideas. The ideas that he had. He basically didn't have as many um, securities in his portfolio, and he would have very concentrated bets. Uh, One of his key bets uh, over the years, and especially last year, was that there would be a convergence between U.S. interest rates on treasuries and German Bund interest rates. Uh, So he, you know, put all these bets that that convergence would happen. It didn't happen. And in fact, toward the end of May, when there was an election in Italy that threw the whole euro off, um, the the move went in the opposite direction. And because he was so heavily leveraged and so heavily uh, concentrated on that bet, in one day, he lost 3%, which is huge for a bond fund. That doesn't happen with bond funds. And that sparked... uh, you know, a lot of people to pull their money out of his fund uh, was obviously really bad headline risk. And that was really the sort of end of Bill's investing career. After that, he stopped producing his monthly commentaries. He rarely appeared on TV. And um, he basically withdrew and, you know, tried to recover from that. Uh, And he he never really did. By the end of last year, he was under a billion dollars. Uh, most of which was his personal money. John Gittleson, Bloomberg investing reporter, joining us from Los Angeles, our man out on the West Coast following the career of Bill Gross. I got to tell you, Paul, I mean, what a larger than life character. I mean, we didn't even get into all of the sort of out there things that he did. You know, he, uh, this the is total return, the, story. the whole concept of the total, total return for fixed income. But it's just amazing that he could build a personal uh, net worth of over a billion dollars being a mutual fund manager. You, just, it's, uh, you see that in the hedge fund world, but you never see that in a mutual fund world, but we certainly saw it there. Well, and as John says, not sure we will see the likes of him again. You know, we've seen sort of the the, the, the larger than life. We've said it a, b- a bunch of times. That character sort of uh, fade away. Uh, so we'll see if another Bill Gross comes along. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. All right, so as we've been discussing Paul Sweeney, this is an absolute must-read story today, and many of our customers agree on the Bloomberg Terminal. Eric Schatzker uh, brought us this story. It is 
to say the least, uh, deeply reported Huawei Sting offers rare glimpse of U.S. targeting Chinese giant. And to some extent, Eric, who joins us now in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, this understates it. That, that, That understates exactly what's going on here because what you get from this story, and it is really a tour de force, so congratulations. Thank you. You really get a sense of how sprawling, how sophisticated, and candidly, uh, how insidious this may may all be. Tell us what happened. Well, let me just say this first. There are people out there, lots of people out there, who hear the name Huawei, who hear this notion that Chinese companies are stealing intellectual property from American companies and either don't care or don't really understand what's going on. And I would say to those people, read up. And this may be one of the things that you ought to read because this issue, this question of IP theft in America by Chinese companies, possibly at the direction of the Chinese government, is a real one. This offers some evidence. There's no proof here, but it raises some big questions. And this little company called Akon Semiconductor, based outside Chicago, was trying to do business with Huawei just as it was trying to do business with all the other major smartphone manufacturers in the world because it came up with what it believed to be a better glass display, more unbreakable, more scratch resistant. And the further it got into its dealings with Huawei, the more it realized, hang on a second, these guys aren't dealing with us in good faith. We've got a big problem. What were specifically some of the issues that the company that you reported on, Acon, what did they find in their dealings uh, with Huawei? Well, when, you, when you're in the materials business or the hardware business, if you like, as these people are, uh, you often offer samples of your product to potential customers so that they can give it a try. And they'll conduct tests to see if it satisfies their requirements and if it's a piece of glass like this is coated with a, a very micro-thin layer of diamond. They want to see that it's scratch-resistant. They want to see that it is more shatterproof, let's say. But the provider of said sample doesn't want you to do too much to it because they're afraid that you're going to try and reverse engineer the product. So they limit your testing to what's called non-destructive methods. And when they got the sample back from Huawei, it was destroyed. They knew immediately that this couldn't have happened in shipping. This is pretty tough stuff. That Huawei had to have uh, exposed this piece of diamond glass to something pretty extreme to wreak the kind of uh, damage that was done to it. And so they reached out to the FBI. They didn't really have any alternative. You're looking at a giant Chinese multinational with billions of dollars in revenue. You're a pre-revenue, pre-customer startup based in Chicago. You don't even have the Silicon Valley mafia to help you there. So they go to the feds. And what's so interesting about going to the feds is it felt a little far-fetched to them, and immediately FBI essentially is like, we're on it. And, and that, in some ways, says That tells a lot. you uh, almost all you need to know, yeah. because like you say, small startup, piece of, it's not even a live product yet. It's not on anybody's smartphone. How important could this be? Well, to the feds, it was very important because, and, and, and I'm um, extrapolating a little bit here, because it... Uh, gave them a sense that what they thought Huawei was doing perhaps was more pervasive and more persistent 
than anybody previously knew that they would go this far right they would reach you know deep into the american tech landscape into the midwest if you will to find something competitive and not just commercially competitive but potentially competitive for military purposes and that's where this you know that's where the story could go in very very interesting directions once this investigation is complete. So just give us a sense right now kind of where Akon is with Huawei on this particular issue. Huawei's got a lot of balls in the air, but where are they with this particular Well, Akon strung Huawei along for quite a while during the FBI, excuse me, the FBI investigation so that uh, the investigators, the special agents could gather evidence. They were on a conference call when a Huawei representative admitted that this glass sample had left United States for mainland China, which would be a violation right. of U.S. Right. export law because this stuff has defense applicability, and subsequently drafted the CEO and the chief operating officer to become uh, assets in a sting operation that I actually witnessed <laughs> in the food court, believe it or not, of the Venetian Casino in Las Vegas. Uh, Vegas coming into the story. Uh, yeah. During the first full week of January when the Consumer Electronics Show is held there, it was all a ruse. If it had been up to them, if it were strictly a commercial decision, they would have bailed on yeah. Huawei ages ago, but they had to string them along. It's amazing. It's really, a, truly, truly a must read. Uh, it will be in the upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week, but it's available right now on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Eric Schatzker, amazing, amazing piece of reporting amid everything else that you've got going on. Uh, congratulations. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. That is data, I believe. But, you know, when advertisers at the Super Bowl plunk down $5 million, it's not that just the 30-second spot they are they're buying. They're also buying the social media buzz that, in, that comes around with being a Super Bowl advertiser. And to give us a sense of what's going on with that social media buzz is Emma Monks. Emma is head of trust and safety at Crisp. She's on the phone uh, to us today calling from the U.K. So, Emma, thanks so much for being with us. Um, assuming you stayed up late enough to uh, watch the Super Bowl, what kind of jumped out of you from the advertising perspective? Any winners and losers from your perspective? Hi there. Um, yeah, definitely a very big winner of the night, which I'd say had to be the uh, Jeep advert and the One Republic National Anthem. Uh, and what we saw that had the most shares, the most love, the most comments, you know, by far. So that, that was the, the big winner of the evening. Um, it, there was also an awful lot of love out there for the uh, NFL adverts with the 100-year uh, gala. Um, that, that definitely uh, had a lot of emotions and a lot of chatter. Well, I can't say that I was blown away by the the quality of the advertising. I mean, there were a few here, here and there. It felt like last year there was a much more kind of consistent theme that people tried to get a little more uh, serious, I guess. I, obviously, social media, Emma, gives us a much mm -hmm. more immediate sense of what people like uh, and, and what they don't. How are people expressing themselves? I mean, is it just sort of vitriolic tweets or how do, how do you measure this? Uh, I mean, social media is, is just a, a sort of a broadcast of people's reactions and emotions, and it's generally the sort of knee-jerk reactions and emotions. So, you know, measuring the sentiment um, against what they post is, is sort of quite a, a, an easy thing. 
Um, as far as you know, the the adverts this year compared to last year, I, I agree with you in that there probably weren't as many serious you know adverts this year. The, the themes were far more along the sort of patriotism and nostalgia for the really very popular advertisements this year. Obviously, the Jeep one was very heavily patriotic, and and it sort of hit the button on not just making America great again, but it was harking back to all the things that made America great, you know, from, from Edison through to Yellow Cap. Um, so that really gets people's emotions going, and we see, you know, an awful lot of positive buzz around those sorts of adverts. Um, the adverts are making people angry. Um, well, you know, the posts also that are making people angry tend to revolve around the game itself, to be honest. Uh, the most uh, anger and vitriol we saw um, from, from our stats were um, NFL posts that were sort of happening just before the game uh, for the most valuable player. And just before the game, there was quite a lot of anger about uh, the post of Tom Brady entering. Um, right. And during the game, there was, there was an interception, and a uh, Patriots interception that got an awful lot of anger. Uh, but as far as advertising, there wasn't an awful amount of vitriol this year. Yeah, good. Emma Monks, Head of Trust and Safety from Crisp, joining us from the UK with some great insights into the Super Bowl. What was your favorite, Paul Sweeney? I like the Bud Light commercial where they brought in the Game of Thrones. Yeah. You know, that was bringing two iconic brands together to kind of, so, you know, they shared costs of the ad. They shared, obviously, the, uh, the exposure. Uh, and it was a big deal for Bud Light because they effectively killed off one of their big characters. Yeah. Um, so that's, the, I'm sure they didn't take that uh, lightly. So, but uh, I thought that that was pretty interesting. And Budweiser was the biggest advertiser on the day right. you know, across all of its brands. And so, uh, you know, I think what's clear is, you know, the football may wax and wane and there may be issues with ratings. But if you're selling beer, uh, there's probably nothing better than the NFL and the Super Bowl. Yeah, I have to say I was a little bit partial to the Colgate ad with Luke Wilson, in part because Carol and I got to catch up with Luke Wilson last week when we were uh, down in Atlanta. Dropper. And uh, it was interesting to hear his perspective on he had never done a Super Bowl ad. Colgate had never done a Super Bowl ad. This was the close talker yes. um, ad. And uh, it was it was mildly amusing, I felt like, and you know, memorable to some extent. Yeah, you know, it's it was really interesting. It's Again, as we were talking with Emma Monks, it's not just the 30-second spot. It really is the social media. So as... As you know, we've seen over the last several years, as social media has become a bigger part of the zeitgeist, advertisers are not waiting to the Super Bowl itself. They will right. release the ads a, a day, a week, or two weeks in advance to generate that buzz and, and uh, a lot of success stories coming out of that strategy as well. Yeah, it's interesting to see that you know people do, as you said, uh, you know, tend to tune in more and more, especially it seems like, you know, when the game was certainly in, for the first three quarters uh, relatively lackluster. And as you know better, far better than I, Paul Sweeney, everything is measured and measured in real time right now. Yeah, and we saw those those Nielsen numbers just for the TV overnights, you know, coming in, the, I guess, the week weakest rating since 2009, but it's still a big number, and I'm sure CBS will say still time well spent. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.